We are back in the Sermon on the Mount, and today is our, our third look um, into, into this, um, this long monologue that's, that's recorded in the book of Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Um, it's my, my favorite um, speech that the Lord gives. Um, he has five major discourses in, uh, in the book of Matthew, and uh, this is my favorite one. Uh, I feel like uh, all of life is just kind of encompassed in here. And... Uh, and Jesus is really going toe-to-toe with, with the, uh, the religious thought of the day, which is just popular religious thought. It's, it really answers the question of how the relationship between a sinner and God can be reconciled. Do you have to earn your way up, or did God come and meet you where you are? Uh, the the uh, Jews thought that you had to obey the laws and follow certain ceremonies and, and, uh, and you know, basically do their rules in order for you to qualify to, uh, to be in the presence of the Lord. Well, God had made it clear that he was coming uh, out of grace. The law was really just a, uh, a school teacher for us to show us that we fall short and that God had to provide the solution, not us. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens up with just a, a whole revolutionary statement to the people in his day because he was recovering the definition of what, uh, of, uh, what group of people were blessed it wasn't that you had to be Jewish, male, rich, and healthy. It's that uh, you, if you were poor in spirit and mourning over your sin and meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and merciful and, and pure and peacemaking, and, uh, and if you were persecuted on account of, uh, of righteousness sake or on account of Jesus, if, uh, if that was what was going on, uh, that's who was blessed. It doesn't matter what, what uh, category of society you were in. If that was the disposition of your heart, you were blessed. You were the one that, that God looked upon favorably. Um, Jesus taught that sin can be sin even when you don't commit a sinful deed. Right? If you remember from last week, Jesus is, uh, is uh, isolating certain actions. He's like, you heard that it was said, don't murder. But I tell you, don't even be angry with your brother. Uh, you heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't lust. And he would go after the heart, and he was, he was uh, showing that your righteousness has to be even, even more righteous than that of the Pharisees. You have to be uh, holier than what you regarded as the holiest people in the land. Because even though you don't do the big sins, even though you don't do wrong things, that doesn't mean that there isn't sinful intention in your heart. And so he exposed that we are far more sinful than we are caught being. Right? People can catch us doing sinful things, but they don't know what's going on inside your, your mind, inside your heart. And Jesus is, is exposing to us that we can be far more sinful than the things that people see. And today, uh, the passage that we look at, which is uh, uh, in chapter 6, um, Jesus is going to show you something else, that uh, even though you do righteous things, even when you do the right thing, you can do the right thing the wrong way. So even your righteousness your active righteousness, the things that you are actually doing that are good, can be bad. And that's, a, that's an important lesson for us to know too. There are three righteous deeds that Jesus discusses here to make his point. The first is giving. The second is praying. The third is fasting. And we'll cover all three of those. Uh, and then we'll, we'll assess at the end uh, uh, our own righteousness and, and the pattern that Jesus is, uh, is weaving here as he talks. Right? Let's start with um, how he corrects us on how we give. Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this is a corrective, and uh, it's pretty easy to understand, right? You, uh, when you give to the needy, give in a way that's not to gain praise, right? Uh, give in a way, to give to the needy without looking for credit, without looking for acclaim, without trying to, to win everyone's approval, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, you're giving to the needy as an act of obedience to God, uh, as an act of, of mercy, to those in need. Uh, you're giving to God as, a, as an act of imitation and worship because of how God has given to you. You ought to train yourself that, uh, uh, that such giving becomes a natural reaction because giving to, uh, to the, the poor is, is not a natural one, right? Naturally, when we see someone holding a sign that says, I need help, uh, we think, what's the, you know? How do I how do I just not make it awkward? How do I walk by without uh, without looking at them in the eye or something like that? Uh, or if you're in your car, you you know you, you just kind of ignore them right outside your window. Or if you give something to them, it's kind of like you you uh, ruffle through your pockets and stuff and look for loose change. Or you go through your wallet and uh, and you see one dollar bills. That's like that's legal. And then when you see like a five or a ten or a twenty, then you're like, hold on now, you know you got to draw the line somewhere. So it's not natural for us to give, to give generously and to give the way that God gave to us. Our, our giving is like, ah, how much do I need to give in order to be like in the clear with the Lord, um, but not really have it cost me anything, right? Um, God, what Jesus says is that when you give to the poor, though, it needs to be instinctual. It's got to be so, so natural to you that you don't even know you're doing it. Your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. You know, you're just pulling something out of your pocket, you're giving it to them, it's, it, it, it's, it's that easy. When I come home uh, from wherever I'm at outside the house, whenever I come home, uh, I take my keys out of my pocket and I, I put it down kind of wherever I go. And this is how I lose my keys all the time because I don't even notice I do it. It's just an instinct. And Jesus is saying, like, that's kind of how giving should be, where it's so natural, you don't even realize you're doing it. Now, he's not trying to say that you should be uh, cavalier with your finances, but, uh, you know, that, that certainly... Giving should be a natural instinct. He says that, uh, that, um, that is something that you do for the poor. And he's not even talking, by the way, about giving offering to church. He's not talking about giving to God. He's talking about just when you see a poor person on the street. So you might already be trained to give to church or to, to give to God, but it's different when you see someone just, you know, interrupting your day and he, that person's in need. That's, that's who he's talking about. Like, you're so good at giving that even spontaneously, unexpectedly, on the spot, you're able to give, and it's just this natural, uh, regular thing that you do. I want to give you a few principles for giving that the, the, that the Bible gives us, just um, some ideas about the attitude behind giving with, with the right heart, right? The first one is that uh, giving is investing with God, Right, because we think of giving as I'm losing money, I'm losing uh, whatever value that I have right now in life. Uh, I'm, you know, you have to give to your in-laws, or you have to give to a charity, or you have to give to the government. You have, you know, there's a lot of times that you have to give stuff away, um, and w- when we do that, our heart goes like, "Oh, but I've just lost something." But when we give with a different kind of heart, there's an investment with God. Luke chapter six, verse thirty-three. 
It says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And that's, that's Jesus telling you, it's like a, it's like a, a marketplace kind of uh, illustration he's giving of like how people would weigh stuff and they'd, you know, they'd shake it down in a basket and make sure it's all there. And he's like, but it'll be flowing over. If you give generously, it'll be given generously to you from the Lord. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so it's the same thing. It's uh, what you put in is what you get out. Now, this does not mean that every dollar you put in to the basket will be more dollars coming back to you, right? There's not this... uh, there's not this kind of financial thing to play on your greed in order to tell you that uh, if you put in money, you'll get back money. It's not that the currency will be equivalent. It's when you give to God, God will give to you. That's the true statement. Will it be the same thing that you gave him? Maybe not, right? The, uh, you don't know what, what he's gonna give back, but he promises you that his grace will abound to you in overflowing measure, right? It does mean that you'll have a proper reward. God isn't stingy and his reward will be worth giving. There's just this, uh, this leap of faith that you have to take that what God intends to give back to you will be worth more than what you gave him. Second principle for giving is that giving is to be sacrificial. It needs to be sacrificial. Um, if, you, if you read in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, there's a, this moment where uh, King David, he's... Um, uh, like he's supposed to give an offering. So someone's like, here, offer this. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not gonna offer anything to the Lord that costs me nothing, right? That's the right attitude to have. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give something to God if it costs me nothing. Because he's like, that's not real giving. That, that's not how giving is, right? If, it's, if it costs me nothing, if it's no sacrifice to me, then, then I've given nothing. Uh, and that's kind of a, an idea that Jesus brings up in Mark chapter 12, verse 43. Uh, Jesus calls his disciples to him, and he says, uh, Truly I say to you, this poor widow who uh, has put in more than all those other people who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. They all gave hundreds of dollars out of their abundance. Uh, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, which is a couple uh, fractions of a penny, uh, all she had to live on. Right? And this is Jesus saying, like, when God looks at this, he's seeing how much it cost her. She put in everything she had. And so what God sees is this immense amount that's been given. And so God wants to give immensely back. That doesn't mean this widow is going to become rich. She's not going to win the lottery and all of a sudden have all these earthly riches that can corrupt her and uh, will fade away when she dies. That's not it. But God does promise that he will reward something like that. And then you have all these guys giving, uh, giving uh, excessive amounts of money because they g- gave out of their abundance. And this is kind of the attitude we might have when we give offering. It's like, what do I have left over, right? I've spent on, uh, I've given to taxes and I've spent on my bills. And then there's the stuff that I wanted to buy, you know, for myself uh, on eBay, on, on Amazon, whatever. Um, there, you know, and then I went and I got as much boba and as much junk food as I want. And then what do I have left over? And then we go, okay, God, you can have this. It's out of my excess. It's out of, uh, it's out of the surplus. And God says, that, well, that doesn't really count because this costs you nothing, right? This, you didn't have to sacrifice. You didn't have to pull back on, uh, on anything that you wanted to get for yourself. You didn't have to deny yourself in any way. Giving is to be sacrificial. Third idea about giving is that giving is not related to how much you give, uh, to how much you have, excuse me. It's not related to how much you have. And this is, consistent with this idea. Even though you give a lot, 
if you had a lot and you gave just from the leftover, um, that's, that's, not, uh, th- that's not the way that God sees. He doesn't see, oh, look how much you gave. He's not looking at the amount, right? Because people think, if I just had more money, then I would give more to the church. Then I would start giving to the church. I just don't have much right now. Now, God's not asking you to go into debt for this. You know, it's not like you get financial aid to pay for school, but then you, you take some of that and you give it to offering, and now you, don't, you can't pay for school. It, it, he's not saying that, right? But uh, when, when people go like, oh, I have all this money that, uh, I only have this much amount of money that I can use, and I want to spend all, all these different things, but if I give offering, then I can't have some of the stuff that I want. And here's what, uh, what, what God says about that in Luke 16, uh, verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Right? Because when you have only a little bit, when you have only just a, a small amount of money, then we see what your priorities are. Right? That's when we see what you're, uh, what you're prioritizing for your spending. When you have more than enough money and then you end up giving offering, it's hard to tell where your priorities are because you had enough to cover everything. But when you have a little, that's when, uh, when uh, the heart is exposed, right? Giving is not related to how much you have. It's, it's related to how you prioritize it. Uh, a fourth principle, giving correlates with spiritual riches. Giving correlates with spiritual riches. Um, Luke 16, verse 11, it says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will, uh, who will entrust to you the true riches? which would be uh, spiritual riches, right? Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And that's an interesting little idea. It's the idea that uh, the money that you have in your care is not really yours, it's God's. So every dollar you have belongs to the Lord and he's, he's just kind of put it uh, in your hands and said, how are you gonna spend my money? And it's a whole different deal when, when you start wondering how much of my money do I give to God versus how much of God's money do I spend on myself? It, uh, it, it changes the way that you, you steward your money. But uh, your faithfulness in his money will, uh, will in- indicate how much he can trust you with true riches, how much he can trust you with something that really is your own. Uh, Another principle is uh, the fifth principle. Fifth? Yeah, fifth is uh, giving is personally determined. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that's good. It means that there isn't some rule. There's no 10% rule. Right? The, the Jews, they had to tithe 10%, and there were several different kinds of tithes, so they actually ended up giving about 22% of their annual income. That was normal. 22% of their annual income went to the Lord. Now, for us, we look at that and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, we're allowed to decide how much we give. And if you notice, our immediate inclination of the heart is to say, I'm allowed to give less. Right? We go, wait, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus has just absolved us from the 22% requisite, and so I'm allowed to give much, much less. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the, the instinct we have. That's the instinct of the flesh. Right? I think an unbeliever would agree with something like that. And yet what's so weird is like when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not loosening up 
the idea of righteousness and loosening up the idea of perfection and loosening up the idea of godliness, he's ratcheting it up like crazy. He's tightening it, right? He's saying, you think righteousness is just not murdering? I say righteousness is not being hateful. Now, which is harder? It's easy not to murder. It's harder not to hate. He goes, you, you, you think righteousness is not committing adultery? I tell you, you can't lust. It's easy for people not to commit adultery because they don't have the opportunity for many of them. But it's harder not to lust because you can get away with it and it's a victimless crime, it feels like. Whenever Jesus is talking through the Sermon on the Mount, he starts, he starts increasing the, uh, our understanding. He, he, he levels up our understanding of what it means to be righteous, of what it means to be holy. So when he talks about giving, um, and, uh, and w- when we get to this idea in the New Testament of like, you're allowed to decide in your heart what to give, and we go, ah, oh, it must be easier then, right? So I, I'm absolved from the 10% rule, I'm absolved from the 20% thing, and we think it gets easier. And yet here's Jesus who says, I gave my whole life for you, and you must present your whole life to me. And it doesn't mean what percentage of your income goes to church, but it does mean all of you belongs to him. So even how you spend every dollar that doesn't go to church, how you spend the dollars that stay in your wallet, in your bank account, that still belongs to him. So he didn't make it easier. He, everything is, is much, much harder. Uh, You just need to know that because then you can at least come to the idea like, wait, I fall short, right? You have to know that that Jesus wasn't saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me me lighten everything up so that uh, you'll want to be a Christian. He doesn't do that. He says, it is impossible to be perfect, but you must be perfect. And when you fall short, you got to come to me because I'm the only solution you got. Um, Another principle of giving is that uh, giving is a response to need. Right? And you can see that in Acts chapter 4 and 5, Paul collected money for Gentiles that, uh, from the Gentiles for poor people in Jerusalem. So when there was need, he's like, hey, we need to give. Um, another principle is that giving is to be generous. Um, you get that in various Psalms and Proverbs. I don't think I need to prove that one to you, right? But when you give to the poor, you give generously because uh, you're giving to the Lord. What you do to the least of these, you, you do to, uh, to Jesus, right? Like when they're naked, you clothe them. When they're hungry, you feed them, etc. Um, giving demonstrates love, not law. Uh, that's that's the scary part, I guess. There's there's no there's no law on on giving, so we don't know when we've given enough, right? There's no way to to, to gauge that, but uh, it shouldn't be. When is it enough? When have I done enough? It shouldn't be that because you're not trying to climb to a certain standard. It should just be the natural reaction of the heart, right? I love people. I see someone in need, and I don't even know this person, but that matters to God, that matters to me. And so because I love the Lord, I want to give. Right? This is so different than the way the Pharisees uh, would give away uh, very publicly with all these trumpets blowing, and, you know, and they would show that they were giving so that everyone would go, wow, look how much that person gave. He must be so righteous, so pious, so faithful. And Jesus says, away with that. You know, the, the, all the applause, all the all the reputation they gained, that's the reward. But you, you got to give in such a way where it doesn't matter who's watching. When no one sees you giving, uh, you still give the same amount because it has nothing to do with the people who are watching. The spectator is not your audience, the Lord is. And you're not doing it to win something from them, you're doing it because God has already given you something and so you're just responding back to that. Uh, Jesus takes you then to... uh, 
to this next idea that he brings a corrective on, which is how you pray. He, he's corrected how you give, and now he corrects how you pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, it says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received the reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who's in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, Israel was a religious society. Right? It was, it was a Jewish nation. Uh, Israel was more zealous for prayer than any other nation. Uh, and yet they screwed up prayer in so many ways. Uh, for them, prayer became ritualized, right? It was memorized, recited, repeated prayers. It's just movement of the lips, but a stillness of the heart, like this, this unmovingness, this, you know, this, this uh, unwavering, like I will not mo- put my heart into motion. It's just my mouth. Right? It's not like the peaceful stillness of the heart, the kind that we, that we ought to have before the Lord. It's the stillness of, I'm not, I'm not going to come before the Lord. I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to do anything. It's just my lips talking. Uh, they repeated the Shema, which is one of their Jewish prayers in Deuteronomy 6, in uh, Deuteronomy 11, in Numbers 15. You, the Shema, they would repeat this three times daily. Just repeat this prayer, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, they had prayers for fire, prayers for lightning, prayers for, uh, for seeing a new moon, prayers for comets, prayers for weather, prayers for hearing good news, prayers for getting furniture, prayers for leaving the city. They had all sorts of prayers that they learned and they recited it when the, when the occasion was right, right? It, it, was, um, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a sincere uh, uh, prayer from the heart. It wasn't, it wasn't words to God. It was just this, it was triggered by circumstance. It was just a reflex action. Right? It, wasn't, it wasn't anything that, uh, that they thought about and cared about. It was just something that, that just happened, but their heart was not in it. They didn't care about it. They didn't, didn't think about what they were saying. They decided that it was more spiritual to pray long prayers. And uh, I, you can kind of understand that. Like when, you're, when your prayer is like, uh, Lord, thanks, Amen. Like there's something a little bit irreverent about that, right? Prayer is a conversation with God uh, and a conversation is rude if it's too short. There's a certain amount of understanding we ought to have about that. When you love someone, you don't give them short answers and then ignore them for days, right? When you love someone, you stay in constant communication and, uh, and y- y- like y- you express how you're doing and what's going on, right? You can't say you love someone and then ignore them. Uh, and it's the same with the Lord. So it's, it's, not that, that, uh, it's not that you have to pray these long prayers, but you shouldn't think that because your prayer is long, now God's listening. Like he ignores the first 30 minutes or something, and then after that you start accruing points. That's not how it goes, right? There's nothing wrong with long prayers if you mean what you say. 
but there's everything wrong with long prayers if it's, uh, if it's long simply for show. Um, the, uh, the Jews would, would use these long prayers and they'd use a lot of repetition, right? It'd be recited prayers, long prayers, and repeated prayers, which is just chanting, right? Uh, and that's something we see in lots of religions, just chanting memorized prayers, like, like the Hail Mary prayer and stuff in Catholicism. Um, you just keep repeating yourself until God gets the message, right? Like if you, keep, if you keep saying it, he'll listen. If you keep saying it, he'll listen. You just over and over and over and over and over again, right? Um, that, I don't think, is a, a good method because that, that doesn't work when, uh, when my son asks me for something over and over and over again. It only increases my chances of me saying no, so why would our Heavenly Father, if we just keep saying the same thing over and over and over again without putting our heart into it? It's different if my son's like, can I have some food? And I say no. And he's like, please, I'm hungry. And I say no. He's like, come on. I'm like, I'm hungry. And then, okay, okay I, I see you mean what you're saying. I'm going to give you food, right? But it's different if he's like, can I have this toy? No. 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 No one forever? No. You can't have any more toys. Right? That's, that's kind of how it would go if it's just like you think that just by asking over and over and over again, if you think that that's the magic trick to make God say yes, forget it, right? But if it's to express the de- desperation of your heart, that's, a, that's something that he would listen to. The issue isn't praying uh, in any particular posture. It's not, uh, it, it's, you know, it, like they would stand out in the, in the street corners in the synagogues and it doesn't matter that they were standing. It doesn't matter that they were in public. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that people saw them. Uh, what matters is that they were doing that to be seen, Right, that was their motive. They wanted people to see that they were praying. They, that's, that's where they wanted the reward. They wanted everyone to respect them and stuff. You know? um, there are beautiful public prayers throughout the Bible. There's 2 Chronicles 6, Nehemiah 9, Acts chapter 4. They're beautiful public prayers and uh, moments where people are out in public. They could be seen and stuff, but they weren't doing it to be seen and to be praised. You know, that, that wasn't the point. I mean, we have public prayers uh, even... Well, when we gather as church, someone prays, and then we all just close our eyes, bow our heads, you know, that's, and that's fine. It's not like, oh, man, since I, I prayed for everybody and everyone saw me, I lost my reward. It's not that, right? It's, it's, it, it, the whole point that Jesus keeps getting at is, is where's your heart? What's your motive? What's your attitude in this? If it's to, to look good in front of people, then you are not even talking to God. You're talking to them, and they can give you your reward. But when you pray, whether in public or in private, you know, you should be praying to God and he'll see it. So your prayer, whether in front of everyone or whether in your room by yourself, should be the same. It should be a sincere prayer, a heartfelt prayer, right? One that's, uh, that's humble before him. There's a, a bunch of stuff we could say about the Lord's Prayer that, uh, that Jesus gives, you know, our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc., all the way through verse 30, uh, 13. Uh, there's a lot that we could say about that, and we did say a lot about that. Um, so to get more on that, you can go to our series on the Lord's Prayer. This is my shameless plug. Okay, you can go to our series on the Lord's Prayer. It's an eight-week series that takes you through that prayer and kind of teaches you what God was, uh, was showing us in the Lord's Prayer. But the main idea, you can pray sincerely, you can pray boastfully, right? You're either praying to God or you're, you're praying for other people to see you. You can, you can do the right thing, which is praying, and you can do it with the right motive, but you can also do it with the wrong motive. And so we got to watch our hearts on that, right? You're not immune to sin while you're praying. You can pray sinfully. Sin and pride are part of us, and that means that they still operate even when we're praying, and so we have to be vigilant against, uh, against that kind of a motive. Um, 
Yeah, in those, in those moments when we pray, we have, to, we have to know that that temptation is always at the doorstep of, of our hearts. And so even then, we have to be humble and confessional. Well, Jesus corrects how you give, he uh, corrects how you pray, and then he corrects how you fast, how you fast. Look at, uh, at chapter 6, verse 16, right? Chapter 6, verse 16. Um, it says, Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about fasting because we don't, we don't talk about fasting very often in church, right? Fasting is total abstinence from food for an extended amount of time, like a day or sometimes several days. Uh, you spend that time praying, right? Uh, it was a, an act of self-denial to get into obedience with God, right? To confess your sin, to prepare for worship, um, and that doesn't mean that, that during that day or during those days that you're praying nonstop, like you have to stay in the same spot, you know, you can't get up to, to move around. And so, like people would still do their job. They'd still go and farm. Then they'd come home and then they just wouldn't eat and they would spend some time praying and stuff, right? It, so they would still live life, but they would deny themselves food in order to spend time in prayer and to, and to be mournful, because you know, like when people are depressed, they, uh, they could be like, I lost my appetite. I don't want to eat, right? Um, it's kind of like that. It's like when you're mourning, you don't eat. You're like, yeah, I, I don't care. Uh, and so when you're, when you're mourning over your sin, when you, when, when you have this repentant attitude, you say, I'm not going to eat. I don't, like that's not even on my mind. I can't sit down and enjoy a meal when I've got this. This is on my heart right now. So uh, fasting is, an, uh, is this a dedicated moment of prayer, this dedicated time of prayer. Um, and every time you see fasting in the Bible, it is always coupled with prayer. You can, see, you can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast without praying. Because fasting without praying is just starving. Okay? Uh, fasting, um, just so you know, fasting offers a variety of benefits. You should know this. It rests your system cleans out the body, it lowers blood pressure, it lowers your cholesterol, it relieves tension, you sleep better, you digest better, you feel euphoric, it sharpens your senses, it quickens mental processes, it boosts self-esteem, you gain self-control, and you empathize with the hungry. Those are the various benefits that you gain from fasting. And the Bible doesn't ever even once mention any of those benefits as a motive for you to fast. Because if that's your motive for fasting, that's your reward. Isaiah 58 mentions health, but that's for spiritual wholeness. Look, if you end up fasting to, to lose weight, um, you're not fasting. You're dieting poorly. Right? If, 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 you're, if you're fasting to lose weight or to, uh, you know, to clean out the body or something like that, then you're not fasting worshipfully, at least not to God. You're worshiping yourself. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 4. Um, 
It says, then the word of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, then the word of Yahweh of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? See, God seems to care about that. That's a pressing question. He says, when you were fasting, were you fasting for me or were you fasting for something else? Right, that, that, uh, that question is important to ask when we fast. All those years you fasted, are you sure it was for me or was it for you? In Jesus' time, uh, fasting was a, a big part of Jewish society. It became a regular part of their society. Uh, what, was, what started as a voluntary act of worship, you know, you get to decide, you get to decide when you want to fast and stuff, um, but it ended up being this, uh, this, this systematized and, uh, and scheduled kind of activity. It was hypocritical. It was self-righteous. It was a demonstration in front of men. And that's what he talks about with the Pharisees putting on this disfigured face, make it real obvious that they weren't eating so that they would think that everyone's super, uh, so everyone would think that they're super spiritual. Um, I, I never understood this passage. Or I, I, I never, like it never hit home until one day, one of my aunts, I hope she's not watching this. Uh, one of my aunts, she, uh, she went to Korea and then she came back and, you know, I asked, how was the trip? She goes, I fasted for 21 days. And I'm like, cool. And she's like, have you? And I said, no, I, I, I'm in high school. I'm a growing boy. <laughs> I, uh, of course not. I've not done that. Um, and she says, well, you should. It's good for you. And I said, okay, that's fine. And then for the rest of that day, whenever I said anything, you know, if, if I brought up like, you know, school's good. She's like, school's good. But if you don't fast for 21 days, then how do you know you've learned anything from God? And he's like, what kind of a question is that? That doesn't make any sense, you know? Um, I would say something like, you know, I'm gonna, uh, uh, I'm gonna go and hang out with my friends. She's like, you think that's so important. But if you fast for 21 days, you'll have this clarity Well, you go hang out with your friends is not as important as you think. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. 21 days, you fasted 21, I get it. You know, uh, I, I don't know if she actually did that, uh, if she actually made it the 20, I don't know. I wasn't there in Korea. I don't know. But she certainly let us know. And the, the big thing was, uh, all, you know, all, all the cousins and I, we were just like, okay, we get it. She, she fasted 21 days. And uh, for us, it was like, uh, that, was not, that was not something that blesses made us go, ah, oh, praise the Lord. That just made us go, oh my gosh, this, this is uh, driving me crazy. The Pharisees were fasting and they were telling everyone they were fasting and they would disfigure their faces and they want everyone to look at them and be like, okay, yes, very good. You, you fasted. And you do it twice a week, right? Like two, uh, the two days out of the week, you, you fast. And, uh, and so you're super spiritual and all that stuff, right? And uh, the, the Pharisees, when you do that, when you, when you get used to doing something like that, it doesn't really affect you all that much. Someone who fasts regularly does not feel uh, that kind of hunger pain um, every single time after you've done it uh, enough as a routine. So at that point, disfiguring their faces becomes, uh, becomes a becomes a show. It's, it's an act, which is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. It means playing the part. It's an actor, right? And it says uh, they do it to be seen, theotomai. That's, uh, that, that's the word we get theater from, right? They, they put on the part, they play the part in order to do theater. The Pharisees fasted twice a week, the second and fifth day, right? Every, every Tuesday and, and, uh, and Friday, they would, they'd fast, Jesus mentioned that in, in Luke 18. But there's only one time that God commands a fast to the nation of Israel, not 
not to anyone else, but to the nation of Israel. The only time he's, God has ever commanded a fast was to the nation of Israel, and uh, it was a general, public, national, annual fast. Uh, it's in Leviticus 16. It's on the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur. And uh, that day when the, the sacrifices of the nation are given for the sins of the people, on the Day of Atonement, on that day from sunrise to sunset, uh, that's when you fast, right? That's the only fast that God ever commands in Scripture, um, and it's, it is, as you can see, connected with confessing sin and seeking forgiveness at the hand of God. That's the only time that God has ever commanded it. It was to Israel uh, for the annual fe- feast, of, uh, the Day of Atonement. Now, beyond that, the Bible never commands a fast. So, do we have to fast? I think that's a legitimate question. Um, scripture talks about a lot of people who fasted. So if you, if you just watch, it's Moses, Samson, Samuel, Hannah, Saul, Jonathan, David, Elijah, Jehoshaphat, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, John the Baptist, Anna, the prophets, the teachers of Antioch, the apostle Paul, uh, this other guy named Jesus. Right, so uh, all of them fasted. And there's this great cloud of witnesses that uh, set examples for us. And here's Jesus, whom we're supposed to imitate, are we supposed to fast? Jesus fasted. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. I'm not going to make it that long, to be honest. But he fasted. Do we fast? Well, the New Testament uh, many times commands us to give and to pray. It never commands us to fast. Fasting was a voluntary act. There's no structure to fasting given in Scripture, no command telling us that we must fast. Now, if you're in the same boat as me, then you're breathing a sigh of relief saying, oh good, I don't have to fast because I really like food. But what's interesting is that Jesus assumed that his disciples did fast. Right? He says, uh, um, verse 17, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, and that's the same as when you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast. So there's just this assumption that fasting is something that you do, right? It's something that, uh, that is not alien to you. It's not something that, uh, that you just dismiss. Giving to the poor, there's no, there's no moment where you're commanded to do it. You're, it's just something you're expected to do as a reaction to God giving to you. Fasting, same thing. It's assumed you're doing all of these things, giving, praying, fasting, so are we required to fast? Jesus didn't command you to fast, but he did expect you to fast. So have fun figuring that one out. He never commanded it, but he does expect it. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Look at this conversation. Uh, the disciples came to John, uh, the disciples, sorry, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus saying, uh, Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? If you notice, Jesus' 12 disciples, they were not fasting. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn, because fasting is connected to mourning over your sin, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Right? When, uh, when I'm here, I'm the bridegroom, says Jesus. Right? When I'm here, why would they mourn? But a time will come where I'll be gone. I'll be taken away. And then they will fast. Right? They will mourn. They will long to see sin rectified and, and the world 
uh, put back together the way it's supposed to be. They will mourn to see the return of Jesus on the earth. They will mourn. They just won't right now while I'm with them, but when I'm, when I'm gone, my disciples will fast. Christ is not on the earth right now, uh, and so it is the time to fast in repentance and in mourning and in waiting for his return. So Christians should fast. It's not commanded in any particular occasion, you know, in any, in any way, but, uh, but we do know what fasting is, and it is expected of us to fast. And you, you just got to decide, when is it that I need to repent and get my eyes on Jesus and pray for his return and pray for the, for, you know, the restoration of, uh, of people who are fallen into sin, myself who's fallen into sin, etc. Um, what should cause us to fast then? Think about this, right? And I told you it's connected to mourning and stuff. So I'll just give you a, a short list of uh, what should cause us to fast. First, confession, right? That's, that's what we talked about in Leviticus 23. That's Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. That's to confess your sin and repent. If you struggle with a particular sin, you feel like you can't seem to shake it, you just don't have victory over it, fast and pray, right? Deny yourself, mourn over your sin, pray and commit to obeying the Lord and, and do this. Do this more than once if you got it, but just keep refocusing for confession. Uh, second one, sorrow. In Joel 1, people fasted because there was a plague. In Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah fasted because the walls of Jerusalem fell. And so these were things that they were depressed about, right? And so they fasted where they're just not going to lose their appetite and sit around and watch TV. But uh, when they're in despair, you know, they would not eat and yet they would turn their attention to the Lord in prayer. And I feel like we lack this, right? We hear of these mass shootings and these plane crashes, tsunamis, earthquakes, pandemics, protests and riots and, and injustice and all this kind of stuff. We talk about it and we talk about it with one another. Like, did you hear about this? Did you read this article? We talk about it and then we go, I think this person's an idiot and I think that person was in the wrong. I think these people are sheep. And we say all that stuff and then we, we talk about it while we're eating, we talk about it because it doesn't affect our lives in any way. We're able to sit there and laugh and then joke about something else and then discuss a TV show or a comic book or whatever. And maybe we need to get our hearts in emotion and mourn over sin and death and tragedy and crisis and catastrophe and all that stuff because God is working to erase these things, right? He wants, he wants a new heavens and a new earth for his people. He wants all this stuff done away with. This is all part of the effects of sin and we should mourn over that. There should be a fasting that comes out. Maybe when we hear about stuff like that, there should be sorrow in our hearts instead of like we're talking about it while we're in a drive-thru. There should be sorrow. When God grieves, we should grieve. How can, how can you eat at a time like this? Third, uh, why should, what should cause us to fast? Protection. Right? Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat knew that the Jews were going to be killed by the Ammonites and Moabites, so they fasted out of fear and they're praying for God for protection, right? They, they didn't eat and they said, no, 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 we need to repent of our sin and we need to beseech the Lord. We gotta beg for protection. Uh, fourth, guidance. Uh, Ezra 8, Ezra needs to know where, where to go to keep his people safe. So they fasted and prayed and he said, God, show us a way, like make it clear to us, you know, like give us a sign or something, do something. And he, he would fast and pray. He's like, don't let our sin be a reason why you, why you don't lead us right? Take care of our sin. Let's get it out of the way. We confess it before you and we beg for forgiveness. And if we're good with you, if our relationship is right, then show us where to go. Uh, understanding. 
Daniel chapter 9, Daniel fasts and, uh, and he prays, confessing his and his people's sin to ask God for understanding of a vision that he was, uh, that he was having, these dreams and visions that he was having. Uh, he fasts because he's like, I don't, I don't get it, and I, I got to ask God to give, give me understanding on this. Uh, preparation for ministry. Jesus fasted for 40 days in preparation for ministry. Uh, Paul often went without food in 2 Corinthians 6 and 11. Right? Um, preparation for ministry. It's just, I mean, they're, it, it just kind of gets you in the zone. I over, like, uh, there's a, a benefit that I kind of understand from this. Uh, after I eat, I slow down. You know, I get sluggish. This food coma, right? That maybe that's the best way to think of it. Um, I don't like to eat before I preach. No breakfast, no lunch. I try to keep my mind as, as sharp and prayerful and, and seeking and understanding as I can, you know, and, uh, and so whenever I'm going to preach it, you know, so that would be on, uh, on Sundays or when we're going to do Bible studies or something, then I, I don't eat because I need to stay, like, at my best. I need to, I need to be before the Lord, and I need to have my heart uh, bare in front of him. Uh, fear of judgment, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, Nineveh fasts and prays because they're fearful of God's judgment, and that's, that's for unbelievers. They're repenting of their sin in that chapter. Um, and it, it's weird. Like You'd think that being in church, we'd get better at that, right? Someone tells us we're in sin, and God's coming to judge sin. You'd think that we would fast and, and repent uh, when that happens. But the longer you're in church, when we're told we're in sin, we start to blame others in our hearts. Well, it's because of this person. It's because of that guy. He made me do it right? Why don't we fast? Why don't we fear the Lord? And then, of course, uh, the last one being selecting leaders. They fasted when they selected leaders. Acts chapter 13, the, the church fasts and prays, uh, and the Spirit tells them who to select as missionaries. You know, they wanted to make sure that their attitudes were clean, um, and uh, they needed to figure out who to send as missionaries, and they didn't want any sinful motives in the way. They didn't want any ulterior motives or personal agendas or anything like that. They didn't want their bias against one person or their favor toward another. It's just, you know, they, they wanted to put all that aside and just be before the Lord and say, we want what you want, Lord. Acts chapter 14, leaders are selected to lead the church. That's done with fasting and prayer. Maybe we shouldn't skip that step when we're selecting pastors and leaders for the church, right? Resumes should not replace fasting when it comes to appointing leaders over God's people. As an extra exercise for those of you who are overachievers, um, you're welcome to read Isaiah 58 verses 3 through 12, basically the first 12 verses of Isaiah 58, uh, and watch how God looks at the heart behind your fasting, not, not at how many days you went, and uh, not how much you moaned and groaned about how hungry you were and how much you wish you had in and out. It's not that. He's just looking at your heart. Like, were you were you broken in confession and sorrow? Were you asking for protection, guidance, understanding, preparation for ministry, fear of judgments, you know, uh, seeking, uh, selecting leaders? Like, what was, what was going on? Why were you praying? Why were you fasting? What was, what was the dominant uh, posture of your heart? Was it to complain about how hard it is, to tell other people how hard it is? You don't have to sit there and try to cover up your fasting either. Like, this is, this is frustrating to me when, like, you know, hey, uh, I, I talk to someone, hey, let's go out to eat, eat lunch. And they're like, no, no, no I can't. Uh, I'm all right. And I'm like, why not? You always want to go eat lunch, and I know you don't have anything planned today. It's like, yeah, 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 but I'm just, uh, yeah, not, now's not a good time. And I just wish they'd go, I'm fasting. You know, like, when it's like, you just can't get a straight answer out of them, because they don't want to lie. 
You know, they don't want to lie. Like I'm allergic to food today. They can't. They can't just like make something up, right? So uh, if I go, hey, let's let's go eat, and and then someone goes, oh, I can't. And I go, why? Ah, you know, I'll tell you later. Tell me late. Tell me right now, right? And it's they're afraid. Like, oh, but if I tell you that I'm fasting, then God doesn't doesn't accept my fast. That's not it, right? You're not fasting in order to to impress me. I'm not impressed. You know, if it, God's your audience, I'm not, right? Let. If you're fasting before the Lord, you can tell me you're fasting. It's okay, right? We can all fast together, and it's okay. It's not like we all have to secretly fast. Like when, when Jesus says, uh, do it in secret. When you fast, wash your face and all that stuff. Do it so it doesn't attract attention. Do it so you're not doing it in order to be seen, right? That's the point. It's like don't do these, don't give to the poor, and don't pray, and don't fast in order to be seen. Like when that becomes our motive, then we want our reward from people, Who is honored by this act of giving or praying or fasting? If the honor is for God, it's good, even if other people know you're doing it. If I see you giving a dollar to a poor guy, you know, like that's good, right? But if you're doing it so that I'll see you and then think, oh, you're, you're so faithful, that's no good, right? Because then you're, you're doing it for yourself. But if it's because you just see someone who genuinely is in need, you want to give to this person, give to this person. Don't worry about who sees you. It doesn't matter. You either worship uh, because of what Jesus did for you, you respond in worship, or you do these acts of worship to get a response from God or to get a response from people. Right? You might be doing these acts of worship, these, these good things, in order to get something in return. That's when it's, it's twisted. That's when it's turned sinful, right? If just knowing that Jesus lived, died, and lived again for you, gave everything for you, and you just go, well, then everything I have is his. So I am happy to give to the poor, just like God gave to me. I'm happy to pray because uh, he's got the answers and I don't. I'm happy to fast because I mourn over my sin and I, I want to be right in front of him. If that's the reaction of your heart to the, the reality of Jesus on the cross, awesome. And don't be concerned about who sees or who, who doesn't see. Don't, you don't have to, you know, try to keep it secret. If, everyone, if someone finds out you've lost your reward, it, it's not like that. If you do it for the reward from people, yeah, that's your reward. That's all you get. Well, none of this is really about giving or praying or fasting then, is it? It's about worship. You know, it's just, it's just where your heart is. It's whether or not you're responding to God and, and offering yourself to him as an act of worship or if you're doing something to look like that so that people give you something, whether it be respect or whatever else. Your worship, then, is at its purest and truest quality when no one can see it except God. Right? That's, that's where you know. Right? Because you can worship with church. You can worship with your discipleship group. You can worship with, you know, with other believers out of peer pressure, or because someone would get mad at you if you didn't. But when you worship when it's just you and God, you in your room, that's where, that's where the authenticity of your worship is laid bare. Right? That's where you and God are honest about where you're at. Whether or not you're worshiping him, whether or not you do that only when everyone else does because you jump on the bandwagon. You like church as opposed to love Jesus. 
in the privacy of our homes, you, we take all the, the, the music away and even take the sermons away and stuff and you take away all the friends and you know, all, the, all the fellowship and all that stuff. Like, who do you become? Right? In those moments, do we seek God's word? In those moments, do we pray? Do we, uh, do we come into the secret moments in worship? Right? The secret moments, the unseen moments. Do we still worship in those times? Startling reality is uh, when no one's around, typically we just sleep or we watch, we watch a show. We entertain ourselves. This is, uh, this is where in, in those private hours in the secrecy of our lives, uh, we, need to, we need to be extra confessional. This is where we need to fast maybe and say, God, this is where I want my heart to be bare before you to remember again the, the power of what Jesus did for me and to, to be consumed by that and to, to, to be filled with that so that in the secret moments when it's just you and me, it'll be a special moment between just you and me and our relationship will, will matter. Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees because they were hypocrites. They could do the right things for the wrong reasons or they could withhold from doing wrong things, still for the wrong reasons. Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. It means what we do, we do for God and God alone, even when no one else sees us worship. And your Father who sees what's in secret will reward you. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, maybe during a time like this, our worship in those secret moments is so much more relevant than ever because our church doesn't get to physically gather yet. So then we get to see how we come before you for a worship service, how we prepare for it, whether we roll out of bed and just turn it on and, and passively spectate it, or if we get up and we prepare and then engage and offer ourselves. Maybe in moments like these, our, our secret moments of worship, we get a better glimpse at the condition of our faith. And we thank you, God, that always it's an invitation forward. That here in, in a moment like this, if we feel that, uh, that we need to be corrected, then correct us, Lord. Compel us to fast and pray, to repent and, and to be clean before you to know that our righteousness will never be enough. It'll always fall short. And so we need yours. Make us poor in spirit. Make us mourn over our sin. Make us meek and hungry and thirsty for righteousness. God, we pray that we would come before you with a heart that loves what you love and hates what you hate. Tune our hearts to yours. And where we go astray, Lord, call us back so that whether people see or not is going to be irrelevant to us. But in everything, whether we're giving or praying or fasting, but in every moment, in it, whether, whether they're spectators or not, that we would be worshiping you for you because of you. We pray that uh, our church would grow in this way and when we do get to meet together, we would celebrate together, worship together, not to be seen 
but because we love Jesus. We pray all this for his glory and his name. Amen.